Hey, Web3 Explorers, welcome to the Edge of AI podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Krieger, and alongside Ron Levy, we're excited to bring you today's episode filmed live from the Edge of AI podcast launch party in Venice Beach, the sun-soaked heart of Southern California. Surrounded by the buzz of the Edge of AI community, we had two captivating panel conversations, the first on AI safety and the second focused on the entertainment industry. First up, find out what someone who's dedicated their life to AI safety thinks about apocalyptic scenarios covered in the media, and learn how some of the most tragic accidents around self-driving cars can be avoided in the future. Lastly, get some first-hand perspective on how companies, whether emerging or Fortune 500, prepare to press the gas pedal on AI, balancing regulatory ambiguity with innovation. Secondly, get a detailed breakdown on different use cases for AI in the entertainment sector and find out why and how gaming and AI go hand in hand, and listen in on some contrasting perspectives on where the creator economy is heading. You won't want to miss these conversations. Welcome aboard the Edge of AI podcast. Snap into your safety belt and prepare to explore the depths of the rapidly expanding AI universe. Each episode is a dispatch featuring hyper-relevant reports from the pilots, pioneers, and passengers aboard the AI rocket ship. We explore the latest use cases and developments in AI, hear from experts building tech, and learn how this disruptive force is transforming industries and society. We'd like to extend a shout-out to our sponsors, whose support and contributions have made this live podcast show possible. First, we have Ardium. Ardium is an expert team of software engineers, developers, and craftspeople combining the latest in software intelligence with the expansiveness of human creativity to create high-craft technology that helps push their clients' business forward. We also have AI Podcast Labs. They empower you to advance your podcast and business with the help of AI, serving as your very own private studio and research facility. So let's get this show on the road. Joining me on stage tonight, they're all leaders in the AI technology boom that's going on now. Ramsey Brown, sitting right here to my left. Ramsey is the founder and CEO of the AI Responsibility Lab and Mission Control, pioneering platforms for trustworthy generative AI with a career spanning nanotechnology, brain mapping, behavioral engineer, and AI safety. Ramsey's expertise in AI has led him to collaborate with Fortune 500 companies, governments, and militaries, making the future actionable and approachable for leaders. He drives the acceleration of quality, velocity, and trust in AI for the world's most successful brands, cementing his position as a notable figure in the AI industry. Then we've got Joe Desmook, to Ramsey's left there, and Joe is a distinguished professor, researcher, and co-director of our very own USC, so USC's Center for Autonomy and AI. With a focus on the intersection of formal methods and machine learning, Joe's research group investigates safety, explainability, and trustworthiness of AI and machine learning-enabled software-controlled systems, particularly in the context of cyber physical systems. He has made significant contributions to mathematically analyze and verify the safety and reliability of critical systems, which includes self-driving cars, medical devices, unmanned aerial vehicles, and more, cementing his position as a leading figure in the field of AI. And then we've got Chris Coglin, and he is the chief business officer at Ardium. He leads the client development team and strategy, driving growth and success for the company and its clients. With a career marked by building and developing strong businesses through sales, customer success, product development, and strategic planning, Chris has honed his skill in effectively marrying vision and strategy for AI-driven solutions. His experience in understanding business challenges, developing innovative solutions, and delivering exceptional products and services through cutting-edge technologies, including AI, has been instrumental in driving success for clients and organizations across various industries. And I am Ron Levy. I am CEO of The Crypto Company, 
We're one of the first publicly traded companies in the crypto blockchain space. I also have a background in growing companies and business operations. And we also run an education company that teaches blockchain to many of the Fortune 500 companies. So we all know that AI brings promise to every industry, but questions remain about how much autonomy is acceptable and how do we manage public safety in the face of potential nefarious use cases. Let's delve deeper into that part of the conversation. And for that, Ramsey, I'd like to start with you on this one. Let's get real about the worst case apocalypse scenarios that are covered in the media all the time. If, is there any merit or anything there that should concern us? I'm glad that we're giving me the easy softball questions first. I really appreciate that, Ron. Sum it up in a sentence. Yeah, right. Kidding. And I'll spare the joke about, do you want the good podcast answer or do you want like the real answer? And I think the real answer is that the concerns are completely merited and we're completely warranted to be fundamentally concerned about the direction and trajectory of AI technologies as they're being developed. And my organization looks at these from the perspective of three timescales. If you go out to the 2035 timescale, 2026 and today, and you find real cause for some consternation and the desire to do this right, because we live in civil society, we're not abstract actors worrying about someone else's world. This is our world. We have to live in it. We as leaders are responsible for which direction it goes. And just briefly, we look at the 2030 timescale, 2035 timescale concerns that actually align quite well with, with Joe's research of if you have autonomous systems that are capable of making their own decisions in real time, and you've given them a set of instructions about what to go out and do in the world, will they allow you to do things like tell them what to do if they become even moderately smarter than a median intelligence human, turn them off and interfere with their ability to get the job done when they've been told things like, you just need to go get this job done, ostensibly turning them off interferes with their ability to get the job done. And they might view that as a challenge to overcome in the same way they might move something out of their way to get to an objective. Can we adequately align their behavior with human values? Because in my desire to get here on time on my bike ride from Marina del Rey, I didn't run stoplights or run over pedestrians because I value following the rules and not hurting people. How do we encode the fuzzy parts of human values into machine systems? Well, again, to Joe's credit, part of his research, very exciting. And can we, if we need to modify them or disable them, will they allow us to do things like this? These are not only interesting philosophical questions. Google DeepMind has looked at them and said, the answer is still currently, it's not just that we're kind of unclear. The answer is probably no. Again, to Joe's credit, why this work is so important on autonomous safety critical systems. Because the current best state of the art understanding is that once we turn things on that are moderately as smart or smarter than us, our chances of meaningfully staying in charge of that situation approach zero pretty fast unless we have drastic new interventions. If you know that to be the case, you start building safety critical systems today. So what does that mean for 2026 then? If you've met a CFO or a BP of finance or someone who's responsible for building the profit and loss sheet for a company and who to hire, and you've met them and you understand the incentive structures they're under, their responsibility is to do right by the firm, not to do right by the laborers that the firm employs. Their job is to maximize value for shareholders and a board, not maximize employment. And if we're entering a world with a generative AI, where AI systems can do many of the types of jobs that we do, your CFO is going to have to do a very hard piece of math in her head about what she thinks is the interesting trade-off between cost synergies on labor and, yeah, but we need to keep people. And an appreciation of the incentive structures that financiers are under and boards are under and publicly traded companies are under spells out some incentive structures that we not, might not actually be comfortable with. And some of the decisions that we make around that are going to determine what employment looks like in the next five years. And the back of napkin numbers from Stanford is that, actually, I should ask, do you use, a, if everyone in the audience, do you use a MacBook for a living to do your job or a PC? Raise your hand if you spend your time staring at email, Slack, MS Teams. If you're on Zoom calls saying, no updates from me, you're a knowledge worker. You don't deliver babies. You don't flip hamburgers. You don't dig ditches. You don't pave roads. You don't fly airplanes. You're a knowledge worker. I'm a knowledge worker. Stanford University is saying six out of 10 knowledge workers by 2026 looking for seeking retraining is the plate term of art they use meaning structural unemployment due to automation. If we rewind it to today, what the risks look like, we're walking into an election hotly contested with one can't even decide on whether or not the election was real or not, for which we're walking into a world where the synthesis of voice, video, and dialogue are completely automatable. 
This is the election that every person here is going to get a two-way phone call from Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And if that is not the thing that undoes the fabric of civil society and our ability to be in consensus reality, I don't know what it's going to take. All of these things, if you know they're coming and you have an adequate six to 18 month warning time span, you start building safety critical research and applied technologies to be able to do that. So when I look at these risks, they're there, they're real, and they warrant us pouring capital into solving them such that we may continue to live in a society that has our virtues and our values. They're absolutely real. It's incredibly well described but for the solutions and the problems. But one thing that really comes to mind as discussed is both of you are doing the research and the development of the protections, I'll call it. You're doing it on your own. You're not waiting until there's a problem. You're looking around the corner and you're doing it on your own now. And that's the part of the industry I want the public to start seeing because AI is becoming super exciting, of course, but we don't want it to become an evil word. There are three executive orders on the books right now, 32 federal mandates and 120 state laws beginning either passed or proposed on the books right now for regulating data and AI. You already live in a world where the powers that be are taking this extremely seriously. Every major government, every major trade organization have come to understand that protecting both profit and the structure of civil society depend on our ability to harness this technology in the next two years. Everybody's already on board. A little later, we're going to kind of get into that, the regulators and then the builders, and see how that's marrying up. There's difference in speeds in the way I operate, and et cetera, et cetera. But, but Joe, I want to go to you right now. So your research covers a lot of the most promising uses for AI, from self-driving cars, unmanned aerial vehicles, medical devices. I mean, those are three very powerful sectors right there. But all of these uses have serious risks around human life and critical infrastructure. How do these types of use cases in particular, impact the broader safety conversation. Are we mixing apples and oranges when we talk about chat GPT versus self-driving cars? Great question. I think, let me say that the answer to this question is both yes and no. So let me first tell you why I think comparing chat GPT to self-driving cars is like comparing apples to oranges. So Ramsey is probably a much greater expert in the field of chat GPT than I am, but generative AI fundamentally relies on natural language processing like tasks. So ChatGPT was invented to language like tasks, like summarizing a piece of text or generating a good response to a question that you ask. And the fundamental models that it uses are, without going into too much technical details, things called transformers, right? Whereas self-driving cars, if you look at them, they use AI, again, in various different forms. And here I would like to say that To the common public, AI is one monolithic entity, which is some kind of a smart brain that lives inside the computer. But actually, the word AI is a product of a number of different methods and algorithms that have been evolving throughout the history of computer science, really. And part of it has to do with symbolic reasoning. Part of it has to do with, can we use a computer to prove theorems or do complex math? Right, So AI has kind of evolved in various ways and chat GPT is just one of the product that we see today that is in the public imagination. It has tickled a lot of people's fancies because it has made things accessible to the common people, right? Whereas self-driving cars use very different kinds of AI. So if you think of a self-driving car or an unmanned aerial vehicle or a medical device, you can think of the software underlies these applications as software that perceives the environment. So if I'm a self-driving car, what is in the environment around me? Where are the people? Where are the cars around me? Can I predict how the uh, things that can move in my environment move? And based on that, how can I make decisions that help me reach my goal, but on the way, as Ramsey was saying, hopefully don't hit the pedestrians or don't hit the cars, right? So that's kind of the motivation for the perception systems in self-driving cars. Other kinds of AI that focus on decision-making. Given all the information about how the environment is, what safe decisions or what decisions to take in order to achieve my objective and achieve it safely. Those are other kinds of AI systems. So these are different kinds of AI-based modules that comprise these safety-critical systems. But I think the main difference between ChatGPT and self-driving cars is I think the impact they have on safety criticality. If you look at ChatGPT today, and if it makes an error, the worst thing you are going to face is you send out a cover letter that looks like nonsense, 
right? Or you have a piece of code maybe that has some bugs and maybe you have to debug it. Or you generate an answer to a question which contains some fake references that ChatGPT just hallucinated, right? These are the worst kind of errors that can happen. But look at some of the incredibly damaging things that self-driving cars have done in recent history. I mean, all of these three are quite grim and morbid, but these are my favorite examples. That's who I am. I am here to poke holes in AI. So if you look at one of the first accidents that a Tesla vehicle did was in Florida, where it confused the side of a semi-truck. The semi-truck was painted completely white and its camera-based system confused the white side of the truck with the sky. The car couldn't decide whether it's a truck or the sky. It just decided it's the sky plowed into the truck and unfortunately ended up killing the driver, who, by the way, at the time was watching a Harry Potter film in the backseat, right? Why did this happen? Because the AI couldn't distinguish between the white side of a truck and the sky. My second example is even grimmer. This happened in Tempe, which actually led to a cycle of events, which led to Uber ATG stopping their experiments with self-driving cars. Here, the car got confused between a pedestrian who was walking their bicycle in the night And they couldn't decide whether it's a pedestrian, a bicycle, or a car. And by the time it made that decision and predicted that this is something I'm going to collide with, it was too late, ended up hitting the pedestrian, killing them. Again, extremely grim. And if you have been following the news, recently there have been a lot of reports about cruise vehicles basically getting in the way of emergency response vehicles in San Francisco and even in Austin, Texas. And basically they just block traffic because The vehicles weren't told that if there is an emergency vehicle behind you, you need to get out of the way, right? This is not something that the AI was programmed to learn. So in this case, in this setting, they're very different. It's apples versus oranges. But again, I said there's yes and a no, right? In some way, they are comparable because in both these kind of applications, what's kind of at the heart or core of them is what are known as neural networks. And For those of you who haven't heard of neural networks before, you can think of them as mathematical structures that we represent in code that somehow are similar to the neural structures within our own brains. And these neural networks are really what are the powerhouse of all of the AI that is coming out now. And fantastic advances in both how we train these neural networks with data and what kind of hardware platforms are used for these neural networks That has really pushed this AI revolution. I mean, unless NVIDIA and ARM and AMD came up with fantastic hardware platforms for the AI to take off, the AI revolution would not have happened. AI, by the way, has gone through several winters where funding in AI dried up, interest in AI dried up, but the recent AI has happened because of these hardware platforms. And again, both ChatGPT and self-driving vehicles at their heart have these neural networks. So unless we mathematically understand how these neural networks work, and as Ramsey's work has been focusing on, add guardrails to what these neural networks can do, we can never kind of be have peace of mind when we sit in a self-driving car, for example. Because, you know, it might just decide that instead of taking you to your destination, it takes you to the mall because somebody programmed it to take you to a mall where you can shop more and earn them revenue. It's great hearing you guys speak because... You're all in the industry a lot earlier than November of 2022, right? So it's been going on for a very long time, but I consider November 22 the same as 2004 for the internet. Why? The masses got high speed. Before that, it had uses, but to really get to the masses, high speed was necessary. In this case, ChatGPT came alive, right? And now we can all touch it, and a lot of us are, and it's starting to change. So it feels like it's brand new. It's not. And when you've got seasoned professionals like you guys in it, you need to be heard because you didn't start from yesterday, right? So I think that's really important. And the one thing about self-driving cars I've I've always wondered about, what happens when there's two bad choices? Hit this person or hit that person? Like, what happens when there's two bad choices? This is being studied, actually. So a show of hands in the audience for the trolley problem. So the trolley problem is the perennial decision about like how do we value human life where you see a runaway trolley going down the tracks and you see the lever that would control which track to send it to and you can get to it in time and you see that the trolley, if it goes down the first pathway, will kill one person, but they're very old. And if you switch to the second track, it kills three people, but they're the opposite. So you're forced to do where some human life gets ended, but you get to decide through action or inaction which human life to take. 
So this problem's hard enough when you try to work it out with humans, but if you have to automate the problem. Yeah. So automated trolleyology is now the study of how the heck are we supposed to encode human value systems into a decision-making system that we have to then legally and insurance-wise justify the just and righteous end of life. And that is an open-ended question. That is not a consensus answer on this yet. And you're potentially programming it into something that's reprogramming onward, right? So these are the dilemmas that exist that forgetting about the potential harm to people, it's fascinating, right? It's just a fascinating study and we're all kind of in it right now. So it's really fantastic. I want to go to you, Chris. For companies looking at AI with a real focus on efficiency and innovation, how do they navigate the current ambiguity and still push forward? It's a great question, Ron. Arium, we have the luxury and the privilege of working with startups that are defining and building their companies from scratch. They're all talking about AI today and how to embed it within their products, be forward thinking about it, all the way up to enterprises that are looking at innovation within their current product stack and thinking about ways that they want to disrupt their industry and whether or not AI is a tool or capability they want to be building in you know, into their products. And we've talked already about risk and you know, CFOs, that's what CFOs get essentially hired to do is manage risk. We talk a lot about risk as well, but when we talk about risk with our clients, we're talking about it through the risk and the reward side. And there's always going to be you know, that balance between saying that something is too risky or there's only risk of all, so we're just not going to do anything. And that need to continue to push forward and take some action in order to advance the field and the capabilities of things like generative AI. So when we're talking to clients, we're talking about that instance of just getting started and looking at it through the potential positive use cases of AI. What can it bring you know, to a company, to your customers, to society? And then if we're very intentional about what those use cases are and the value they can bring, even without implementing the technology, we can start to look at and saying, is the risk worth this potential upside? So at Ardium, we're very focused on helping our clients get started to do something. And as long as they're doing that intentionally and thinking through both the risk and the reward, then we do believe that there's going to be a point where people start to say, yes, we need to do something. We don't necessarily want to just jump in head first because we, there is a lot of unknowns, both on the political side and just on the technology side. But getting started is what's going to, we think, really propel this technology in one direction or another. We also look at AI, and Ramsey, I think this goes back to what you were talking around knowledge workers. CFOs are out there looking at costs and cost efficiencies. But we look at AI through that lens of what superpowers is AI giving to the various people that it touches. We look at it today through the lens of a software engineer. What superpowers do our software engineers now have that they might not have had access to before November of last year? And when we propose that to clients, we're not looking at it through how do you take some costs out of the business? It's really how do you take your workforce today and just allow them to really provide even more value than they had capabilities for in the past. So for us, again, it's to balance of risk and reward. But if you're not at least having those conversations about what you think the upside could be, then nobody's ever going to get started. And we think that's the wrong. With your teams and expertise and what you do, it's kind of fascinating to me because you, some of your clients are startups, right? They're just starting and Maybe they come to you and say, we need exactly this. And maybe they come to you and say, we want the AI difference. What is it? But then you've also got major corporations that are coming to you. Can you just speak briefly? But like, how do you address that? There's so many sort of parallel technologies available for you to go to. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, it goes back to the idea of what's the use case and what are you trying to achieve at the end of the day? With startups, there's a different risk profile. It's usually one or two founders that are making those decisions. And they get to decide what's right for them at that time. They're out there hustling, trying to create a business. Within the enterprises, there's a lot of different stakeholders. And there's never going to be consensus at those levels. So for us, it's really just about, again, having those deliberate conversations, finding the people that feel very strongly one way or the other, and getting them in a room and talking about it. And I think that's really the key right now, is that everyone needs to be part of that conversation, and everyone needs to be aligned in a direction forward. Certainly. And it makes a lot of sense, but it's ever growing because like one of the podcasts we're working on right now, it's a company that serves retail and they have AI uses, three or four of them that come to mind right now that are totally different than one another, but they all combined make, you know, build their business. So that's what you've got to kind of contend with is your business just has to be 
snowballing with the more knowledge people get, the more they ask for, right? The more that's available. So I think it's pretty fantastic. We're a little short on time, but I want to quickly, we touched on maybe three brief answers from you guys. We touched on the regulators and some of the laws that are coming to be Ramsey Mansion and all, but then you've got the speed in which all this is working. And we've got three really responsible people here with very responsible companies. We know there's companies of all size that are responsible and there's companies of all sizes that are not. So the pace of regulators and the pace of the industry, just any comments you've got around that? Ramsey, you can start. I'm pleasantly surprised consistently by actually how fast the United States government is moving around this to not just set up regulatory barriers like the European Union has recently with the EUAI Act, but follow the path of the United Kingdom in setting up regulations that are pro-innovation and pro-industry while still keeping a safeguard in civil society. The fact that the U.S. has spun on a dime to take this as seriously as they have through nimble working groups between the intelligence community, the Department of Defense, and the U.S. government writ large is consistently surprising me. Not that I want to see sluggishness, but God, when you're so used to something like making fun of the DMV for taking so long, and suddenly the government has like a hypothesis on thinking machines, you're a little pleasantly surprised by this whole matter. Super fantastic. Joe, you have any comments on that? Yeah, I think that's a great comment. I'm glad to hear about all these things about AI. I think autonomous driving is one of those areas where I think more regulations are needed. And one of the challenges in generally regulating AI is how do you regulate AI and who does the regulation, right? And how does the regulation get enforced? So for example, if we take a look at avionics companies, all of you who have flown commercial know that not a single jet takes off without several years of review by the FAA. Not a single medical device gets used or sold by to general public without several years of review by the FDA. Who does that for self-driving vehicles? That's not really clear. And how do we do that? I think an interesting question. So that's interesting. The two answers so far, that's the dilemma, both of your comments. But Chris, you're not getting off the hook. Yeah. I. So from our perspective, we employ incredible craftspeople that are software developers, designers. We believe, I believe that people are fundamentally good. And when you give them great tools, they're going to do the right thing using those tools. The practices that we deploy as software engineers at Artium in the way that we build software is around things like doing test-driven development, where we can build in some of those protections on what we want software to do before we even start writing code. And if you start thinking about intentionally, how do I make sure that anything that I'm building here, whether it's you know, using AI or it's not, the test cases are based on a good outcome that is not biased or the right outcome without that risk is really great. And then also because we pair program, it's really hard to get two engineers that are willing to work together and do something bad at any one time. So by pairing together, we're essentially checks and balancing ourselves and making sure that we're doing things the right way. We strongly believe that if you develop software the right way, then the outcomes are going to be the good thing that we're, we're looking for. So your three answers define why this is an amazing panel here, because they were all different than one another, and they come from so much experience, and it was super thought-provoking. So thank you for all those. Let's quickly, we'll start with you, Chris. Where do people find you if they want to look at uh, RDM and see what you're doing or track you? How do they do that? Yeah, so thanks for that. www.thisisrdm.com. Find us on our website. And then we also got some great social out there and our own podcast, Crafted, which is about the great products that are out there and the people that create them. Thanks for having us. Fabulous. Joe? So please look up the Center for Autonomy and AI at USC. Super simple to remember, aai.usc.edu. This is a center that I co-direct with my colleagues in ECE at USC. And you can find me there. Okay, And Ramsey? Pretty easy to find. We're usemissioncontrol.com. I'm on LinkedIn and come say hi when we're all done here. Fantastic. All right, let's get the show on the road. Joining me on stage are these two amazing leaders in AI technology. Les Borsai, who is a highly successful entrepreneur and consultant specializing in the cryptocurrency, blockchain, and entertainment industry with over a decade of experience managing recording artists and launching successful startups in digital music and cryptocurrency, including Wyona Judd, among others, including Jason Mraz as well. Les is the co-founder of Wave Financial, a registered investment advisor with $1.5 billion under management. It bridges the gap between traditional asset management and cutting-edge digital currencies. In addition to all of this, he's been in the world of IP licensing for many decades. His visionary approach and expertise in the realm of digital assets continues to shape and redefine the future of technology and entertainment. What a bio. And we have Rachel Joy Victor, who is an independent designer, strategist, and world builder exploring emergent technologies 
including XR, AI, and Web3, for a cohesive narrative experiences at the intersection of systems and humans. She is the co-founder of FBRC.AI, connecting studios and startups for content innovation. And her expertise in computational neuroscience and spatial economics informs data-driven, immersive designs. She worked for some big names, folks, like Disney, HBO, Technicolor, Vans, Ford, Nike, and many more. And she also leads executive education sessions for Activision, Unilever, Prestige, Warner Brothers, Sony, Crocs, Red Bull. The list goes on and on. She's spoken to a lot of different audiences, including The Nab Show and Games for Change around design for emerging tech. And we're so glad to have her with us today as well. I am Josh Krieger. I'll be your captain for today's exhilarating voyage to the edge of AI. Just like you, I have this insatiable curiosity, which has led me on a cross-industry entrepreneurial journey, building transformative companies. As co-founder of Edge of Company, I've hosted over 250 conversations like this with emerging tech leaders. And artificial intelligence has been part of my toolkit for a long time. I was actually a co-founder of one of the largest food tech companies in the United States, Territory Foods, which led me to come to LA. And I architected the menu planning algorithm based on consumer taste. And before all of this, my roots in consulting, including supporting geospatial visualization services across 28 federal agencies and a predictive homeless analytics initiative to curb veteran homelessness. So today we'll navigate uncharted territories in AI. So buckle up and get ready to embark on an amazing adventure. Let's set sail. So I don't think there's a more relevant mainstream media conversation right now than AI in Hollywood. And that's why we wanted to have this conversation with you both today. I think we all know at this point, artificial intelligence offers these immense possibilities to enhance creativity, engagement, create new types of fan experiences for audiences worldwide. But it's uncharted territory and it has its challenges too. And we're trying to figure out how to get through those. So I think it makes sense to start the conversation with how is AI revolutionizing the creative process in the entertainment industry at the core? What are some of the tools that are being used to produce captivating content? Rachel, why don't we start off with you? I think it helps to understand that like AI has been utilized in the film industry, been utilized in media for a while now. There are different types of AI, right? What we've seen from November 2022 onwards and this kind of hype cycle driven interest in AI is generative AI, which is just one category of AI. And there's a lot more different types of AI. There's machine learning that's been built into tools that's introduced efficiencies for a long time now. There are some interesting things kind of being brought about with this next generation of AI tooling, though. Generative AI is able to output content in a really unique way because it's built on large trained, large data sets that didn't need to be labeled. So it's able to spit out a large amount of content. But what we're seeing out of that is kind of innovations across three sectors with relation to media and entertainment. So one is introducing efficiencies within existing workflows. So that's both within traditional production, that's within virtual production as a part of the film production process. And that's things like you don't have to animate every frame. You can animate keyframes and then animation can be created between those keyframes. And so those efficiencies have already been introduced for a while. Where we're seeing kind of a new category of innovation is around script to screen or script to concept models. So that's where we're seeing like generative images that are created that allow you to put in a prompt and get a visual output at the level of the frame and kind of create without necessarily needing the typical infrastructure that's required around producing content. There are advantages and disadvantages to that as a model, and there are trade-offs between what it enables, and I'm sure we'll go into that a little bit more in a sec. But that's a new kind of category of creation that's emerged with generative AI. The third kind of category of how AI facilitates content creation is AI and procedural creation, which has been happening for a while. It's kind of the opposite of generative AI in some ways. If we think of generative AI as bottom-up, trained models. Procedural AI is you create the architecture and the rules for how systems intersect and you allow those systems to intersect. And if you saw simulations like South Park episode, that's more based on procedural AI. Where we're going to see, I think, a lot of advancements is in the hybrid and the intersection of all of these things working together. So these are kind of categories of things that are enabled with different AI tooling, but they're coming together in really interesting hybrid ways. I really appreciate the breakdown there because I feel like the media mashes all this stuff together and it's the nuances where the real opportunities lie, right? 
Les, you've been an innovator disruptor on all sides of entertainment over the last few decades. What is this moment in time compared to past stages of sort of rapid innovation? And is this a different moment for some reason or another? I'd like to hope it is. When I think back to the experiences I had with innovative technologies coming into studio systems or studios where I worked, our natural defense mechanism was to litigate versus embrace innovation. And we used IP as a weapon. And I say we because I was there when it was happening and it always pissed me off that we couldn't just embrace these kind of young, bright minds that were innovating. One of the things that led me to cryptocurrency and really connected me to it was this idea of collaboration. And you didn't have to have a set agenda as a company. You could be a finance company, and you could produce films. So I just really love this idea of smashing things together. One of the key markers in my life was an AOL bot, Time Warner. It was primed for disruption. It didn't end well. But the fact that it happened was always one of those big kind of motivating factors for me. So when I kind of look at AI and how it's going to disrupt, it's things like we've seen just a ton of music content coming that's being created. I wrote an article that ended up in spin about this, and it was about musicians being immortal through AI. The fact of the matter is touring musicians that are on the other side of their career that can't do what they used to do, maybe can't even write in some cases the way they used to write, can almost write with themselves by putting prompts into artificial intelligence and co-writing with themselves. So the cool thing about the whole space is just the imagination you can have and how you can disrupt, which is, you know, I've been working on an AI project, well, a project with AI for about a year now, which I'll get into a little bit. But again, it's that idea of not everything has to be exactly as it's written. And this premise that everything has to be hit-driven in Hollywood sucks because it kills the creator economy. And there should be a builder economy that allows creators to make more. And it doesn't have to be a hit every time. Right on. And both of you have also dabbled in both AI and Web3 and I'm sure other innovative technologies as well. But what I'm hearing from you, Les, is that there's also this cross-entertainment mashup or convergence happening at the same time there's this Web3 AI convergence where you can start from A and get to point C, multiple different paths that weren't possible, where you go from music to gaming or you go from gaming to a show that's really popular and I binge-watched on Netflix, right? So I think it's all about storytelling. And now that you have that anchor of a story, you can sort of be creative outside your comfort zone because you have these tools that can sort of enable you to accelerate innovation where you're not learning a completely new craft. Is that what's gotten you excited about gaming and that intersection with Hollywood, or is it something else? I mean, that's partially it. I think there is this general idea that it has to be web two or it has to be web three. And the truth is you can take great elements from both. You know, web two has audience, web two has speed that you can tap into and web three has decentralization and monetization that comes in a different way. So for me, like the points that are exciting and you mentioned world builder, that's the point. You can actually build worlds right now and incorporate a lot of those different concepts into the world. The fundamental problem is with the way the system works now, it's not about monetization, the several hits pay for the many failures. And it's like if you can create enough points of economic value, you can take these different technologies and apply them together and create something where you actually create a bigger audience, bigger adoption versus limited adoption. Rachel, how do you sell this to your clients when you're thinking about taking interactive narratives and characters and applying them across different genres? I think it's a constant evolution of where the industry is at and like what they're willing to accept. Because I think, to your point, less of like supporting this type of cross-format narrative, there's been a desire for it in different ways. You had a lot of different names. You've been called transmedia narratives before, just a term that's come in and out of popularity. I think there's a desire both on the consumer side to like have a persistent and continuous experience and on the brand side to like think about the long tail and building like longer term value around the IP that they're creating. But it runs up against a lot of like real life issues around like how organizations are structured, how production cycles are structured, how 
budgets are structured. So for example, if I'm working with a brand, they might like the idea of building like a brand experience ecosystem that connects their product, that connects the content and marketing that they're creating, that connects the metaverse world they want to build. But at the end of the day, their budgets are quarterly, their KPIs aren't necessarily rewarding them for building that type of engagement. So some of it comes around like a longer term conversation of like, how are we reshaping metrics, right? How are we actually showing that there's value in building community over time and thinking about the LTV around engagement across a content ecosystem and making sure that we're updating like the KPIs and the metrics we're looking at to reflect those types of things. So that's one category, I think, of pushing the type of innovation. I think the other is figuring out ways to kind of backdoor more cohesive narrative, which is, okay, you only have funding to like make this activation or to build this one thing for this quarter and maybe like a little bit more funding. Let's start thinking about like what your long-term world is and the type of narrative that you want to tell for your brand. And we'll build that activation. We'll make it really compelling. We will do all the things that make it a sell, but we'll also put in a piece of that long-term strategy. We'll put in a piece of that world that you want to build and also build out enough strategy for what the next piece is going to be. And it's not necessarily doing it the ideal way, which is some amount of like top-down strategy of like, this is the world we want to build. This is where we want to see our audiences because sometimes it's just not the structure that brands are set up to allow in terms of that long-term thinking. But it's working kind of within those constraints to start building something that's longer term and that's more cohesive over time. So speaking of building, Les, how are you going to be building these games and what are you going to be doing with AI and how is it different than maybe how you would approach this type of uh, problem set in the past or the types of companies that you would have invested in like five years ago? I mean, we've already been doing it for about a year. So I love everything you have to say. I mean, but fundamentally, I couldn't be kind of more opposed to it in some ways. I just don't think that way anymore. And I used to. And because I don't give a about brands and I (laughs) don't care about any of it. And no offense, that's just me these days as I get older. So the thing, the, the very polite argument we're having up here, and uh, look, I, was, I, I think I, contrast is why we're having conversations, right? And our audience should understand the different perspectives here because where this is all going is still a story being told. Yeah. So what I did is I typically build things when I'm just angry. So I figure out ways to kind of deal with that anger, I think. And so being a licensing guy, Having done licensing for companies like Zynga and Giphy and all these companies, the first thing I wanted to do when I looked at this Web 2.5 model was to find content that I loved. And there were games that really like impacted me when I was young, things like Neuromancer and all those cyberpunk dystopian games. And I thought, you know what? I want to go license a bunch of source code. That was the first part. The second part was I wanted to take social media authentic influencers, not brand influencers. You know, like I didn't want to take someone like a Kim Kardashian to promote a game when she doesn't know shit about games. I wanted to take authentic gamers that stream and actually build them into games and almost create a true digital twin model in putting them into the games we were building, but also kind of stepping out of our foundation and putting them into other games as the games were being developed because interoperability doesn't exist yet. And it's incredibly hard to do it across chains. You can't. So you can't have people build into the games. And then the other component was in this world to put AI into these characters. So, I mean, that solved for a couple of things. If you're a guy that went through a divorce and spent a lot of time looking at technology at night because you got nothing else going on, you can really learn a lot about these apps that are out there. And I looked at all of it and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be an incredible environment if gamers could have deeper interactions with the characters they're playing with? And then we started building in VR and web and it goes from there. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but think about a formidable moment in the journey of Edge of NFT when Yatsu, the chairman of Animoca Brands, came on our show. And we were about six months and we we're like, well, we have these contests we do. Do you want to do a contest? And normally someone's like, we'll give us an NFT or something. We'll give it away. He's like, no, why don't we create an Edge of NFT racing car in our new racing game? and bling out a thousand of these with your logo and you can give away your race cars to your audience. And it went viral and it was like, it started our relationship with Animoca Brands who's one of our lead investors, but it made me rethink about co-creation. And 
I gotta say, it was really freaking cool to have an edge of NFT race car in a game six months into creating a new company. And it actually, I think, was one of those moments that sort of catapulted our brand. Expand on that further. So if you take Adam Mocha and we start to look at influencer culture that's global, and again, these are all lessons from cryptocurrency. When we look at secondary marketplaces that were for NFTs, well, they can distribute anything. So if you start to integrate into games called Animoca or Mythical or YGG in the Philippines, you have a bigger distribution system by building those products. Now, if you can make them more robust by putting AI into them and creating more interpersonal relationships, well, then you've built more than just a, a fundamental world. You've actually connected all the pieces. So that's exactly the same experience. Powerful stuff. So fast forward to today, there was some news. The writers are finally talking to Hollywood and trying to figure things out. I don't know where all this is going, but let's sort of play future tellers for a moment. And curious, Rachel, where you think the writers and actors strike is going to fall out. And frankly, like, do you see a new industry category being created? Like, well, I am as mentioned around likeness and essence. And is that essential to sort of the new entertainment industry coexisting with AI? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this comes down to specificity of like what we're talking about, right? And sometimes that nuance gets lost in the conversation around AI on all sides. And I think part of it is related to some of what we've been talking about today. What is the format of what we're consuming? A lot of the conversation is centering around like film and television as being the format output of choice. But when we bring AI into the equation, the format isn't necessarily something as linear and passive as film and television, it's something more responsive. It's content formats that like games, like virtual worlds, like the racing car with embedded narrative kind of affordances as a part of it that says, oh, I specifically have this racing car. And because I got it from my involvement with Edge of NFT, it means certain things. It gives me a certain boost when I'm within the game, right? Like all of those things are in... Our car was pretty slow, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> And it had bad, bad turning radius. The future edge of NFT or edge of AI vehicle, right? All of those things aren't necessarily formats as we know of them, right? They're an emerging kind of category that are giving, are enabling participation for the consumer within the story worlds that they care about. I'm going to say as an aside, I think story worlds are brand. I think everything is brand. IP is brand, right? So it just depends on how you kind of categorize brand in terms of how you want to engage with it. Brand is something that brings people together. It's something that people identify with shoe company and sometimes people identify with Star Wars. But as a part of that, there's this evolving picture of where are creators a part of that story, right? And so when we're talking about the Writers Guild, when we're talking about SAG, it's a question of like, how are we making sure that writers write themselves into the story of these emerging formats? How are we making sure that writing isn't just considered the, the words that you put on a page in the screenplay, but if you're creating the backstory of an AI character, that's writing as well. If you are thinking through the logic of the systems of a world and how they relate to each other, that's being a creative or that's being a writer in some way as well. So I think it's leaning into the nuance in some ways of what are these new roles that are emerging around writing, for instance. In the context of SAG, for instance, I think some of it is leaning into the nuance of what capture looks like. So currently, like if you're an actor and you act in a film, you don't own the film at the end of the day, but you still own your likeness. You can go and sell your likeness to take on other roles as well. And some of what we're seeing with the SAG conversation is this conflation of performance capture and body capture and saying that those are the same thing when they're not. And I think as we move towards making sure that there's equity in how creators are a part of the process in terms of collaborating with the AI. It's making sure that at the end of the day, name, image, likeness are owned by the people that are inputting into the system and they have the ability to own and kind of get value out of the work that they create by collaborating with AI. I hope SAG has someone like yourself on their advisory committee because these are some really important points. Les, what's your thoughts here? So we've been doing motion capture for some of the influencers. It's super costly to do it right. And I don't want to f own anyone's likeness. Like if they leave, they can have it. I don't care what it costs. I want to participate in the monetization that I create. And I think, you know, when we take a look at the strike and it's about a creator's ability to earn a living at the end of the day, when did the studios and the distribution mechanisms become so important that we can't exist without them? And that's where the disruption needs to happen. 
is it needs to start with the economics look like. And we've been on this plan for a long time with studios and record companies. And it just needs to change and it'll be easier because then anyone can create. The natural selection process to even be able to do it is just insane to actually break in what you have to do to get it done. You should be able to have a platform that allows you to create and show the world what you're creating and get paid for it. So on the flip side, though, where do we run into a brick wall in terms of creativity and originality where AI sort of pushes the limits and there at the end of it all is genericness, potentially? Is that a, a potential challenge here when we sort of like whether or not we're at the point of where creativity is trumped by the power of AI is is debatable. I mean, I've talked to actors and writers and artists that think AI is already winning. Do we have a concern with creativity and originality? You're shaking your head, Rachel. I don't think so. (laughs) I think that, first of all, if you actually play with AI tools, there's a lot of issues with where they're at right now. And there are also certain caps to what they can do as they exist, right? Like if you play with stable diffusion, if you play with image generation models, a lot of those are transformer-based models. So you're not going to be able to have some kind of stylistic or object consistency that you want. And there's going to be a limit to what you can achieve with that. I think people assume that everything is just about compute power. So if we keep throwing compute power at it, it's just going to get better and better. That's not exactly how it works. There's, first of all, a limit to the tools as they're structured now. And secondly, I think there's still going to be value in terms of what we bring to the puzzle in terms of collaboration with AI. I think humans and AI each are good at different things. If we think about where intelligence comes from, and this is, say, neurosciences is coming a little bit from that perspective, it's not localized to our brain. So it's not just about the connections within the networks of our brain. It's our embodied intelligence. It's the fact that we have sensory systems that feed into how our brain works. All of those things, the schemas that are a part of our brain, the society in which we grow up, all feed into what we consider human intelligence. And there's no way to replicate that structure one-to-one with AI. So they're going to be different at the end of the day, which isn't a bad thing. I think there are things that AI can do much better and will be able to do much better than we can. It's about designing in complementary ways for AI to augment us. I hear you acknowledge it like you actually agree with each other on this one. (laughs) I'm actually looking forward to superintelligence just to take it past our capacity and see what it creates. So far away we are from that. Do we get to AGI? You could probably answer that to get to superintelligence. I mean, the word you used several times, which is accurate, it's a tool. It can enhance the creativity of an individual dependent upon the prompts that I put in, what philosophies I believe in scraping what I've said in social media to create a true representation of myself if we're using it for a digital twin model. It's no different in some ways if I'm co-creating and I'm using it as a tool for what I'm going to be creating. So, Well, let's flip the script and talk about the consumer consumption side of the house for a moment. And then I will leave a little time for audience Q&A. So if you have a burning question for these folks, have it ready to go. In that sense of media consumption, There's definitely new patterns shaping around how to influence what people watch and how they consume. Where do you see this side of it heading? Yeah, I think AI has been incorporated into that for a long time. If you look at a company like Netflix, for instance, or Spotify or TikTok, they're algorithms that are feeding you content. They know you well and they know your preferences well. I think that where we're going to see more of an evolution there is around better context, right, of like, What is your spatial context? What is your emotional context? What is that just got an email in the inbox that maybe caused your blood pressure to spike? So now Spotify is recommending you calming music, right? Like, (laughs) what does that look like? (laughs) And that interplay between understanding where we're at as humans on a deeper level. But then that's a lot of information. That's a lot of data to know about a person. How are we making sure that there's a privacy piece to that? How are we making sure that there's ownership for the individual of like, yeah, I do want Spotify to know it because I want them to feed me relevant information, but where else does that information go? How am I aware of ownership of data? I always have like a little bit of FOMO. Like what is Netflix or Spotify not telling me that I actually want to know to expand my horizons? Yeah, I think it's interesting because sometimes depending on settings, you can go in and see like, this is the profile they've created of you and get a better sense of how you've kind of on a data picture have been seen by this technology. And that's always interesting because it picks at different data points. It's not going to be completely accurate. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that I'm always evolving as a human and my tastes are changing and I want to get outside my comfort zone. Maybe I don't. I'm actually curious about something you could probably answer. What we don't hear too much about is as we make the shift to Microsoft and we make the shift to GPT, how it's going to impact search, how it's going to impact lead generation, the way people have been paid. Curious, just your opinion is on some of that. Yeah, I think that's definitely, it comes back to formats in some way, right? Like it used to be you search and then you're curating through links and then you search now and there's the synthesis of content. I think we're going to see more of kind of specialization of like ChatGPT, even though it tries to be like universal office-based use, it still has a POV at the end of the day based on the constraints that are built into its systems, right? And so you might opt into different types of constraints and thus choose different types of engines. So I think that's one way where we'll see kind of a difference in, in that market developing. I think the other is if you're using AI to create an email and make sure you have enough content, you put in the bullet points and it spits out an email for you. And on the other end, someone's reading that email and it's like, I don't want to read all this and it's using AI to synthesize it. What does that mean? How does that change the content, the, the functional relationships between people in some ways, especially when, when we're not necessarily talking about narrative, but we're talking about like efficiency. There might be kind of shorthand ways of engine to engine kind of I appreciate the question, too, and it sort of makes me want to ask you, Les, a little bit more about how you think AI is going to shape marketing distribution for your gaming company. Before I answer that, I was just actually thinking about something else that I actually love, and you can elaborate on this in a minute. But with the way the kind of large language format works, from what I understand, is, is you have this destination, which is Microsoft Now, after OpenAI. And what I love about Everything that's hitting the market right now is I don't believe the record companies are going to be able to stop it. And it's going to land on Microsoft to figure out what a takedown is and what it isn't. But at a certain point, there's going to be so much content. Like if we look at the bot problem that is happening right now with Instagram and Twitter and all these places, like imagine what's going to happen with AI when the speed of content hits everything. Like how do you take it down? How do you manage IP at that point? That's going to be an interesting dynamic. I don't think I know the answers to that yet. <laughs> I think that's a huge space that still needs work. If we're talking about spaces where there's still like a lot of gaps, content regulation, because context is so important for content regulation, and that's something that AI struggles with, privacy piece that we just talked about, regulation around like AI safety and regulation around AI attribution, like those are all areas that are still kind of we're catching up or we're trying to catch up, but we're quite far behind in figuring out solutions. Is it wrong I'm rooting for AI? What does it mean to root against AI? Rooting against AI would be rooting for Microsoft, so. Okay. Cool. Well, this has been a really exciting conversation. I've learned a lot. I want to give our live studio audience a chance to ask one or two questions. If anyone has any, for the sake of expediency, just jump right to your question. Feel free to raise your hand. We have a question over here. Yep, shout it out. I heard you guys talk about creativity and AI and storytelling. Is there anybody out there that you can co-sign? These guys are doing it right. These are artists that are using AI together in really interesting ways that are standing out in the way that people did with NFTs or you know big actors doing film. Are you seeing anybody that's really standing out right now that we can tune into and see this is a blueprint or that people that are doing it right? question was any artists that are being true pioneers at using AI in the right ways? I mean, for me, I love searching for music that's been created that has nothing to do with the original artist, except it, for instance, there's an Oasis record. I think it was called Oasis or something. And they took the time frame when the band was just starting out and they wrote the next record. And it was really interesting to listen to. Or there were these variations of the Beatles and Brian Wilson performing a Beach Boys song. I mean, that stuff's really interesting. It's stuff we would have never heard before, even if it isn't exactly right yet. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening in music. I think there are a lot of creators. I think probably what's most exciting to me is, like, how there's the democratization of tools. So there's so many people, every time there's a new tool out, they're just on it. And they're not just playing with the constraints of the tool. They're linking these tools to each other. And that's what's really exciting to see. And we have another question in the front row. It seems to me that AI is the elephant in the room of these two strikes crippling Hollywood at this point. Where do you see the equilibrium point between being, having AI enable and augment creators, but taking away jobs from these two unions? I'm going to try to paraphrase the question. There's this clear tension between 
using AI to transform and innovate the entertainment industry and the potential loss of jobs and sort of disincentivizing talent and and creativity, where is all this going to go? I think it's from where I sit, you're not going to like the answer. I think creatives should be creative and there should be outlets for creatives. And if the existing structure doesn't work, then it. figure out another place to be creative. And I think there's going to be innovative. Look, even if you look at this younger generation, as we dealt with things in digital currencies, they were incredibly innovative with lots of things. I mean, the idea with GameStop short against these huge hedge funds that got crippled by kids that just believed in something. I want creators and writers to look at the next generation of kids that are building to go back to these archaic models. I mean, I think sound stages are going to become museums and technology, especially digital technology. It just gives you so much you can do that you've never been able to do. You look at studio model, for instance, you have an affiliate model for distribution where you're dealing with someone in a foreign market. You have to go motivate them to sell your product. And it's like, wouldn't it just be easier if it was just all connected? And I think that's what this younger generation is going to do. They're going to give different opportunities with higher margins that go to the creators. And you know what? The world will be back in the place it should be in. So I don't care about the strike. Rachel, any closing thoughts here? I think that I would argue that AI isn't the elephant in the room of the strikes. I think the issue is fundamentally about the economics of content. What is the content? What are people willing to pay for both to create and to consume? I think that's the question. And AI is kind of just the flashpoint on which that's turning. But I think if we really want to solve it, it comes back to a lot of what you're saying of like, we need to innovate on the formats. We need to innovate on the models behind what people are consuming because it's been changing for so long and we haven't kept up to date with that. One last point there. If you take a look at the Silicon Valley or venture-backed startups that are innovative, there's skin in the game. Everyone who's developing those companies wants to win. We take a look at the entertainment business. None of them are incentivized. They turn up to their job. They do their job. And the innovation just gets smacked out of the room. And that's a problem. It's just really more of the same. And I think when we start to incentivize the people that build these companies, they'll figure out how to make money while paying creators. It's just been wrong for so long. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. I can tell that because it's getting late here in Venice and the audience is glued to their seats, engaged. And I learned a lot this evening. I really appreciate both your time so much for being part of this live podcast launch party for Edge of AI. Would love to just let people know here and at home where people can go to learn more about you and the projects you're working on. Rachel? Yeah, I'm at racheljoyvictor.com. Also check out Fabric AI, FBRC.ai. We're working a lot in the space of connecting startups to who are solving for specific issues with um, and gaps in the AI ecosystem to each other, to resources, to corporate sponsors that can help support them and bring them to the next stage. Yeah, I mean, I think my name's just less at wavegp.com or social media or whatever. I just usually answer, so... All right. It's time for another safe landing at the outer edge of the AI universe for today. This is your captain, Josh Krieger. And on behalf of our panelists and the entire crew, I'd like to thank you for choosing this voyage with us today. Wish you a safe and enjoyable continuation of your journey. When you come back aboard, make sure to bring a friend. Our starship is always ready for more adventures. Head over to Spotify or iTunes right now. Rate us and share your thoughts. Your support and feedback means the world to us. Don't forget to visit edgeofai.co to learn more. Connect with us on major social platforms by searching for edge of underscore AI. Join the exciting conversations happening online. Before we sign off, mark your calendars for our next voyage where we'll continue to unravel the mysteries and advancements of AI. Until then, bye-bye. The views and opinions expressed on Edge of AI reflect solely those views and opinions of the show hosts and its guests. Please make sure to do your own research. While we make every effort to ensure that the information about AI technology is accurate and up-to-date, we cannot guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or timeliness. We make no representations or warranties of any kind with respect to the information, products, or services discussed. Please be aware AI may occasionally generate incorrect or misleading information and produce offensive or biased content. Under no circumstances shall we be liable for any loss or damage, including without limitation, indirect or consequential loss or damage, or any loss or damage arising from loss of data or profits arising out of or in connection with the use of technology discussed on our podcast. Additionally, our show is not financial advice. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. Whenever making financial decisions, we recommend doing your own research and talking to your accountant for financial advice. 
Lastly, time to time, we may feature sponsored content on the show for which we receive value, and we may share links for which we receive a commission if you make a purchase through one of these links. Refer to our website, edgeofai.xyz, for our full disclaimer, terms and conditions, privacy policy, and copyright notice. The views and opinions expressed on Edge of AI reflect solely those views and opinions of the show hosts and its guests. Please make sure to do your own research. While we make every effort to ensure that the information about AI technology is accurate and up-to-date, we cannot guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or timeliness. We make no representations or warranties of any kind with respect to the information, products, or services discussed. Please be aware AI may occasionally generate incorrect or misleading information and produce offensive or biased content. Under no circumstances shall we be liable for any loss or damage, including without limitation, indirect or consequential loss or damage, or any loss or damage arising from loss of data or profits arising out of or in connection with the use of technology discussed on our podcast. Additionally, our show is not financial advice. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. Whenever making financial decisions, we recommend doing your own research and talking to your accountant for financial advice. Lastly, time to time, we may feature sponsored content on the show for which we receive value, and we may share links for which we receive a commission if you make a purchase through one of these links. Refer to our website, edgeofai.xyz, for our full disclaimer, terms and conditions, privacy policy, and copyright notice. The views and opinions expressed on Edge of AI reflect solely those views and opinions of the show hosts and its guests. Please make sure to do your own research. While we make every effort to ensure that the information about AI technology is accurate and up-to-date, we cannot guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or timeliness. We make no representations or warranties of any kind with respect to the information, products, or services discussed. Please be aware AI may occasionally generate incorrect or misleading information and produce offensive or biased content. Under no circumstances shall we be liable for any loss or damage, including without limitation, indirect or consequential loss or damage, or any loss or damage arising from loss of data or profits arising out of or in connection with the use of technology discussed on our podcast. Additionally, our show is not financial advice. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. Whenever making financial decisions, we recommend doing your own research and talking to your accountant for financial advice. Lastly, time to time, we may feature sponsored content on the show for which we receive value, and we may share links for which we receive a commission if you make a purchase through one of these links. Refer to our website, edgeofai.xyz, for our full disclaimer, terms and conditions, privacy policy, and copyright notice.